Good morning and welcome to the Jesuit Institute Hour here on Radio Veritas. My name is Frances Correa and with me in the studio today I also have Pamela Moringa and we are going to be talking about various things this morning. We are going to begin with a pre-recorded interview between Father Russell Pollitt and Father Rampe Chlopel um, on the situation of refugees and migrants in the country. And I've just been struck as I was listening to Father Emil talking about Our Lady, talking about the celebrations that are happening as we um, as we approach the big celebrations around Fatima, that it's really important that we remember the special place that Our Lady holds in her heart for people who are refugees and migrants, that we remember that the Holy Family themselves were refugees. Um, that, you know, there is that lovely story, well, that pain-wracking story, really, in the Gospels, where we hear about how Joseph heard in a dream that Herod wanted to kill Jesus. And he took Mary and the baby, and he fled into Egypt. And there they lived as refugees for a number of years. Scripture doesn't tell us how long, but they lived there for a time until Herod died. I think it's really, really important when we're thinking about big celebrations like the Fatima celebration that we remember the role that Mary has in the lives of many people, but particularly those people who share experiences with her like that of being refugees. So we're beginning with that conversation about migrants and refugees, and then we will have a little bit later... Um, an interview that Pam has done with Father Anthony Egan. This is the interview I said to you last week was coming. So this is the interview around the movie Silence. And here, the story, as you know, of the movie Silence is the story of some Jesuits going in the uh, late 1600s, 17th century, going to Japan as missionaries and their experiences there. And here we have one of the Jesuits reacting to that experience and talking about how that experience of watching the movie Silence, which is quite a profound movie, it, it really is um, moving, how that impacted on him. So we've got Pamela's interview coming up as well. So we're going to move now to Father Russell, talking to Father Rampechlopo about the plight of refugees and migrants in our country. A very good day to you. With me today, Father Russell Pollitt, is Father Rampe Tlobo, a Jesuit who's working in Cape Town. He's the parish priest of Nyanga, but for a number of years has been involved in affairs around migrants and refugees, and he also worked for Jesuit Refugee Service. So it's very good to uh, have you with us, Rampe. Thank you, Russell, and uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here with you guys. Refugees and migrants have really been put on the agenda in the last couple of years. I think we can say Pope Francis has raised the profile and the plight of people who are moving. Uh, one of his big things is to make people welcome. It's an imperative of the Old Testament that we welcome the stranger. In South Africa, do we really welcome strangers? <laughs> it's a it's a really tricky question uh, regarding South Africa because we have on one hand at the moment, what one would see as progressive legislation that at face value, you would say it's welcoming. But are we hospitable? That's another question, because then it's one thing saying to people, you can come and then you then it's another thing when you start frustrating them. And even the legal framework that is in place, it's not uh, respected uh, to the letter. And uh, the migrants and refugees that come in are frustrated, the processes and takes long to adjudicate their their applications and all that. So uh, 
welcome and hospitality, I think there are two things that we, we need to look at. And uh, I would say, yes, the legislation, it is welcoming. De jure, yes, we do. We are welcoming. But de facto, it's... It's questionable. You point to a problem that, of course, uh, we face in a number of different areas, whether one's talking about uh, xenophobia or homophobia or whatever, is that one can have legislation in place, but it's really the changing of minds and hearts and attitudes which is so important. Definitely, definitely. And and uh, like I was saying, you know, South Africa is known to have a progressive legislation, legal framework, but uh, frustrating people who are supposed to be protected by that uh, legal framework, it doesn't really show. It's not a sign of welcoming. Uh, it's a sign of uh, not being hospitable. So for me, uh, I would say we, we have a mix back here, uh, or, or maybe it's just playing politics to have good legislation and yet not implement it as, as we should. So that is the challenge that I see with South Africa. And so I would be not sure whether we are welcoming or, or really want these people to be here with us uh, and, and to give them the protection that they need when we don't uh, apply or implement the laws and, and the policies that we have in place. Let's give people a sense of uh, the kinds of struggles that migrants and refugees face. Okay, so we've got legislation, but now we're talking about, of course, hospitality. What are the kind of day-to-day struggles that migrants and refugees face in South Africa? All right, let's start with refugees. Basically, we have a, let's look at the international legal framework in place, which South Africa has ratified and signed, and uh, the, the Refugee Act. Basically, as a refugee, one has the rights of a national, so they can access things like uh, education and uh, access to health and uh, all those things that any South Africans would, would need to access. But then, if you don't give them the proper document documentation, then they can't access all those things. So on one hand, you say, okay, come in, and then you don't give them the necessary documents for them to access these things that would make us look hospitable and welcoming, and you frustrate them. So documentation becomes an issue. And once documentation is not settled, then people cannot settle in. They can, they are still not safe, as it were. They are still not protected. Because once they fall sick, they can't go to hospital and access that medical uh, facilities. Their children can't go, go to school and, and, and uh, uh, get the education that they need. So, and, and they can be harassed by the police on the streets and, and they can be abused by the, uh, unscrupulous employers. So, they, you render them vulnerable by just refusing them proper documentation. So that's the first challenge. Is there a, uh, sort of a hypocrisy in the way that we do things? I mean, we've got good legislation. The world looks at us. They think, oh, South Africa must be a leader. But actually, we know on the inside that we're not really applying that. I mean, is there it sort of seems to to sound like you're suggesting there's there's a sort of hypocrisy in the way that we do things here? Well, yeah, you, one, one could say that. One, one could say that. But again, I think just to take a, a, a positive spin, I think it's also true to say that uh, Home Affairs has been struggling uh, capacity-wise to get uh, of officials who are capable with dealing with migration and refugee issues. For a long time, they've had people who are not... Uh, competent in this area of, of, of migration and refugees. And one has to look at the context, our context. We have been in this area of migration for 20, 
23 years maybe at most since the late 90s that's when we opened our borders to everybody and uh, started receiving refugees as well so capacity wise we have been struggling but yes there is that kind of hypocrisy as well in in in, in the migration uh, field refugee and migration field it's called pattern shifting mm. yeah there is that pattern shifting which is only a pro- not only a problem of south africa i think there is a, a general sense of uh, governments uh, now not wanting to welcome refugees, not wanting to take responsibility uh, in protecting refugees in their countries. And it's because other countries have, have have been actually saying, okay, we will give money to X, Y countries and we won't uh, actually uh, welcome refugees or accept them in our countries. So to keep them... That's, and, and one example is the... Mediterranean crisis that we've been having. Mm. You've seen a lot of uh, uh, European countries trying to give money to the North African countries so that they can uh, keep away the refugees from the mm. Mediterranean so shores. human yeah. problems. Throw yeah. money at something. Yeah. Maybe it'll so, work out. Exactly. So now you have that kind of sense that, you know, what that's the kind of pattern shifting that we see. People not wanting to take response, actual responsibility of human beings and just saying, okay, they can, the problem can be dealt by someone, somebody else and not us. We'll just give money or, you know, so there's that, 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 that shift. And uh, the challenge as well of uh, uh, funding so that, you know, the, the, the whole migration uh, regime and, and refugee regime could be implemented properly, uh, you know, resources that are needed on the ground. It's, it, it's, it's becoming more and more expensive. It's becoming more and more expensive. And, and once we start looking at the rents and cents, then that human factor fizzles out. And, and now we're no longer dealing, we're not seeing people as human beings now. We're seeing them as, as either assets or, or, or liabilities. Mm. There's a sense that things evolve. And um, so when, you know, when if we look at our own country, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was kind of fashionable to be involved in, in, in HIV AIDS work. And now we hardly hear it anymore. We don't see any reports in the media about HIV AIDS. There's a sense to me that this has evolved as well, that at one point in the not too distant past, it was quite fashionable to be working with refugees and migrants. There was lots of resources available. The world seems to evolve in, into the opposite direction now, the rise of nationalism with people like Trump, and we're seeing this in various places in Europe. Uh, this all seems to also have a fashion factor on on exactly what you're saying that suddenly we're finding people being less hospitable less welcoming legislation tightening up or is it just that we've become aware of the difficulties and you think that that's maybe a false premise well uh, there's there's a little bit of truth in that uh, and i i think we, 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 the the national politics they play a role as well mm. I, I, and and uh, in our case in South Africa, you know, with, with the poor getting poorer and, and, and the rich getting richer, uh, that creates problems on the ground. If you look at the xenophobic problems that we've had in South Africa, they've been mainly in poorer communities. You know, I mean, that's, that's not an excuse, but if that's one thing that, that we're quite sure of that, uh, you know, you, you find these violent xenophobic, uh, sentiments in poor communities where people feel that they haven't received the share in the national pie and economic pie. Mm. So, um, and they are frustrated because of their situations and, uh, 
now it's 23 years since we've had our democracy in South Africa and people are still living in appalling conditions. And now when you have migrants and refugees coming into these communities and uh, basically there is a scramble for the little resources that the government can give. And so it creates some kind of animosity amongst uh, the communities. And in the end, in most cases, the refugees and the migrants, they become scapegoats. Mm. Uh, Are they political footballs as well? I mean, besides the poverty that people feel, as, as you're describing, I mean, do politicians capitalize on migrants and refugees for their own purposes as well? Maybe they do. Maybe they do. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, in that in that political game, if, if we may call it that, uh, you, 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 you can see sometimes when, when the change, there's a shift in attitude in, in the government policies, you can see that, okay, maybe there are elections around the corner or, you know, all those kind of things. And not only in South Africa, and I think in, in many other countries, you've seen mm. that. Look at the, the, the current situation in France now, the, 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 the presidential elections that are, that are coming up, uh, in, in France between Le Pen and Macron. Le Pen, Capitalizing a lot on, and I mean, the Le Pen family, they've been on the question of migration for, for many, many years. So the, the question of migration for them, it's important. So that's also used in, in, in politics, in national politics. Mm. And uh, well, we need to look to the US and see what Trump did. I mean, yeah, the famous wall the, that the he's wall, going to build. Exactly. And it's to keep people away. It's to kind of, you know, that parent shifting as it were. So, and, and in hospitality, uh, in the end. So, yeah. They they become the ball in the foot in that game in the political game if if we can put it that way. You mentioned it just now. I want to come back to xenophobia. It's been something in the last five or so years here yeah, in South Africa that's been very much part of the landscape. If one looks at tragic moments in 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 history in the last couple of years, uh, things like the xenophobic attacks have to be up there with with Marikana, for example. Uh, is xenophobia always lurking beneath the surface in South Africa? as some people would have us believe, or is it sporadic? What is your sense about xenophobia? I think it's important uh, for us to realize that that we've had the problem of xenophobia since the ni- the nineties, uh, uh, in early, early years of our democracy. Mm. So it, it's not something, of course, in people look at 2008 as like um, the time when it really uh, took everybody's attention, but there has been uh, incidents, many incidents that went unnoticed. And those of us who started working in this field of refugees and migrants in in, in the nineties or early early two thousands, we've had incidents, sporadic incidents, but systematic as well. But then uh, you're talking about things being fashionable earlier on. Mm. It was not fashionable. Well, we, we, some of these cases, we've taken them to the media and all that, but they were not given the attention that they should have been given then. Mm. So in a way, it was something that was there lacking, but it was there. Mm-hmm. And for us who were working in this area, we knew that it was a problem at that time. Even in the academic uh, uh, fields, if you look at the researches that were done in the late 90s, uh, 2000, they were there were concerns raised about xenophobia, mm. but of course, you know, policymakers they don't look at research, <laughs> or I mean, sometimes they don't, and uh, so these things they have been there. It's not a new thing. So two thousand and eight, we had that 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 huge uh, spark, and then 
we had the problem. So we haven't dealt with it. It is a problem that has been sitting with us since the dawn of our uh, democracy in South Africa. And we haven't, oh, the policymakers and the law enforcers haven't dealt with it decisively to make sure that it's not a problem as it is now, as we are having it now uh, in these uh, days. How does one counter xenophobia while we're on the topic of xenophobia? What what can one really do? I think xenophobia is a problem of integration. Mm. You know, the UNHCR talks of lo- local integration as a durable solution. It's it's good. It's a question of it's good to have a nice policy that welcomes people, but you also have to have systems and structures in place that would be able to implement that integration, so that people when they come into host communities there is some sense of acceptance amongst the community, you know, of those coming into the community and those who are coming in feeling at home, being able to participate in the activities of the community and making some meaningful contribution. So if you don't have those structures of integration that will help everybody see one another as an asset, then we'll, I think we'll always have that problem of, 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 of xenophobia because as uh, as for now, I think one one of the things that causes the is that we the host communities they don't see those who are coming into their communities as assets; they see mm. them as liabilities or even threats or even threats. Mm. Yes, exactly. I think it's more threats than anything else. So we need structures in place that will help people to integrate. So we shouldn't just talk of local integration as a durable solution, but there should be structures in place in communities that welcome uh, refugees and migrants, structures that will make them, uh, help them to integrate and be part of the community and accept it as, as, as a community. So social cohesion. Mm. Uh, just to end off, uh, I'd like to ask you about the church, what the church is doing in terms of migration refugees in South Africa. Um, and maybe, you know, a hard question to, to put to you as well is not just what the church is doing, but is the church doing enough? Well, let's start with the last question. It's, it's an easy one to answer. The church is not doing enough, but the church is doing something. Um, we have, I think, on the pastoral side and uh, and. Uh, 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 we have a lot of, uh, some of the dioceses here in, in South Africa, you know, they have uh, pastoral centers and, and uh, dealing with migrants and refugees. And then we have also NGOs, uh, Catholic NGOs like uh, JRS, uh, very Movement, uh, the Scalabrinis, you know, helping refugees to integrate somehow and helping them with their socioeconomic needs. But I think what is seriously lacking when I, when, when I said, you know, the church is not doing enough. What is seriously lacking is the aspect of advocacy. Mm. The church is not strong. I think it is weak when it comes to advocating for the rights of migrants and, and, and refugees. Mm. Mm. So that, that's the area that I would say we really need to improve as, as the church. And when you're saying advocacy, you're talking about specific levels like with government or you're talking about, uh, you know, in the NGO world or you're simply just talking about in, in, in parishes? I'm talking about all levels. Mm. And I think all levels are equally important because you, you, let's start with parishes. You know, if, if the, the parish priests could, could sensitize the people, make people aware of the sufferings of the refugees and migrants and uh, encourage people to have a change of heart because in parishes, that's where the xenophobic attacks happen. And so that's where we need to have a, a change of heart. And then we come at a policy level. The church needs to engage the policymakers who 
come up with these policies and 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 and, and challenge them and and uh, encourage them to come up with policies that are humane uh, that 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 promote human dignity so all levels are equally important uh, the way i see it so and i that's why i think the advocacy side of of things is still weak you know do you think the the rise of more and more clergy who are coming in from outside, who, so to speak, are foreigners. We, we, we're living in a time where vocations are becoming more and more difficult. Many people talking about a vocational crisis. Uh, so we're seeing priests come in from different parts of the world. Do you think this is going to change the way that the church deals things because those priests are coming in uh, as, as, so to speak, uh, strangers or foreigners? Well, I, you know, it's, it, it, but it doesn't deal with the problem. You see, it's it's like bringing you you bring you bring people from outside for evangelization purposes. Mm. That's fine, but then are they tackling the issues? Mm. Because then you cannot just assume that by having somebody from outside doing something, um, they may be appreciated as parish priests, as, but will that uh, be transferred to other non-South Africans? I think that's that's where the, the the challenge is because then they will look at this parish priest who comes from Nigeria or from Malawi or whatever as a very good father, you know, he's helping us grow spiritually, and he will be appreciated for that. But the man who runs this puzzle shop down the road from Somalia, will he get the same kind of uh, uh, appreciation as as uh, the parish priest? So, you know, you, you, you need to look at those and, and once you don't deal with the issues and talk about them, it, it won't just happen by magic. Mm. Yeah, they would need to be tackled. It's a complex problem that we're dealing with, and no doubt one that will be with us still for a very long time. So, uh, Father Rampesh Lobo, thank you very much uh, for your time and uh, for your insights into this whole question, which I said at the beginning is very close to the heart of Pope Francis, migrants and refugees. Thank you very much, and thank you for raising awareness and uh, dealing with the issues. Thank you. So that was Father... Russell Pollitt interviewing Father Rampechlopo and they were talking again about the issue of migrants and refugees which as you can hear is one that uh, is very close to the heart also of Father Rampe. Uh, I remember working with Rampe for many uh, for many years when he was in JRS and uh, just his passion for refugees and his real knowledge of the rest of Africa uh, was awe-inspiring to me. So we're going to move now to a piece of music. We're going to listen to a piece by the St. Louis Jesuits, Take Lord and Receive. 